Enterprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest estates these days This representation of storm brewing Amazed that the focus remains The vocal focal point of my change Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast I'm your host, Matt Chittam And this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there Who are working hard to get better While balancing running with the rest of their lives And today on this show we have Brody Sharp My friend from Down Under Who is a sports physio Who's going to be dropping all sorts of knowledge about how to make sure that you're ready to run, uh, how to deal with common injuries, dealing the, dealing with the difference between uncomfortable and pain and all the things that uh, physios and physical therapists can really help us in our own running journeys. And we even get into the difference between what is a physio and what is a physical therapist. <laughs> I actually opened up with that question because I wasn't sure and it was really helpful for him to break it down. Before we get into it, I do want to give a huge shout out to the sponsor of this episode, Brio, my favorite company right now for all things therapy and massage. This company is unbelievable. I've had their stuff for a couple months now, and I'm so excited to pimp their products here on this show. First things first, the mini massage gun. This little sucker is so useful and so cheap. $89. I shouldn't say cheap. I should say inexpensive because it is the real deal, and it will definitely hold up, that's for sure. You get three adjustable speeds, you have stunning accuracy and power, you get three different heads that work different areas, you get the deep muscle massage, you get the quick relief, and I love to use it pre-run to get my body, you know, get the blood flowing and really help you out there, and it's a DC portable charger, so you don't have to worry about batteries, and it's just super on the go. It's really, it's, it's pretty small. But it really does pack a punch. The other thing that I'm really loving with them and this thing, holy cow, <laughs> holy cow, is the foot massager. This device is unbelievable. To put it this way, last night before bed, my wife grabbed a glass of wine, put her feet in the foot massager and said, this is the highlight right here. I am loving this thing right now. And I actually took it on our vacation. My family loved it. They could not get enough of it. The thing with this thing is it increases the blood flow. It has, you know, increases circulation to your feet. It relieves stress and it can help relieve tiredness and soreness, which so many of us have. That is for sure. And you have the three different levels where you have heat activation on or off and then three levels within each, the strength and how fast it moves. And it really, you really can dial it into exactly what you want. And it, it's something else. It is really, truly amazing. And just like the, um, what's it called? Just like the massage gun, you plug it in. So the massage gun, you charge it up and then you can take it on the go. This thing, you need it plugged in the whole time, but it's totally fine because you're not going anywhere once you have this thing on. You just want to lay back and chill. So go to us.brio, that's B-R-E-O.com and use code RamblingRunner to save 17%, which means you can get this whole package for under $200 and it is an unbelievable deal. Something you'll use every single day, which is exactly what you want to hear when you're spending that kind of money because it's not super expensive, but it's an investment, but it's an investment in you. So that's us.brio.com with code RamblingRunner to save 17%. Now let's get into it with Brody Sharp. All right, Brody Sharp is here. I'm so excited for this. This is a little, little home and home action. I had the pleasure of being on your podcast a few was it a few months ago now. I lose track of day and time, um, especially over the past 18 months or so. But it was a pleasure being on your show, and I'm so excited to have you here on the Rambling Runner podcast, Brody. Thank you so much for joining me, Matt. I'm a huge fan, huge fan of your podcast. So thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So right before we 
press record here and got to go. And I asked you real quick, and I almost didn't ask this question, but I'm so glad that I did in retrospect. I said, so before we get going, should I call you a physio or a physical therapist? Because I know that both terms are, are commonplace. And you're like, well, actually, there is a difference. And I don't know if you want to get into it. I'm like, hold on. Let's talk about it on the show. So enlighten me. Well, in terms of like qualifications and like expertise, they're very similar, but I guess geographically it's quite different. So it seems like physical therapists just reside in the US um, everywhere. Even if you were to go up to Canada, they have physiotherapists. And so there's, in terms of the rehab side of things and like the injury insights, they're very similar. I know here in Australia, the physiotherapists are um, also trained to work in hospitals, like work with people who are admitted to hospital, post-operations, those sort of things, which I don't think a physical therapist is really um, uh, like treating those type of patients. But yeah, in terms of injury, in terms of running assessments and all that, it seems exactly the same. All right. So let's get into your decision to spend a lot of your time working with runners, at what point in the education process or maybe post-education and working through um, the variety of jobs that you may have had, at what point did you start to really direct your profession towards running specifically? Yeah. So when I graduated from physiotherapy, it was 2012. I was mainly playing basketball. I grew up playing basketball, started playing at quite an elite level. All right. We can just derail right now, my man. (laughs) We just talk hoops all the time, all pod. Although I have like uh, throughout my career, I um, gave up basketball and decided to try a new avenue and that being like recreational running and sort of dabbling into a few triathlons here and there as well. And so it was probably about two or three years into my physio career that I gave gave this recreational running a try. My sister was training for a half marathon at the time. She asked if I wanted to train with her because she wanted that accountability and she wanted just to share the experience with someone. And so I agreed, quickly caught the bug, quickly got injured. But the um, the what what sort of stemmed from that was as soon as I caught the running bug, as soon as I loved running, I was starting to see runners in the clinic. And like, I was working just as an employee, seeing anyone under the sun, but whenever a runner would come in, like my ears would just prick up. I'd have this heightened passion. I'd turn into a different physio. I would just like want to chat about their running shoes. I want to chat about their injuries, their past injuries, what running goals they have. And they would walk out of the the room, walk out of the consult and I'd just be buzzing for the rest of the day, having treated runners. And so it only took a couple of months for me to realize maybe I should just spend most of my time being around a population that sort of brings out my better self. And I'm trying my best to get these clinical outcomes. I'm trying my best to educate them as, as best I can. And maybe I should just do that because I recognize that I need to spend more time around people and around things that give me energy rather than deplete my energy. And so now I'm on this, um, on this sort of career path now where I'm hosting the Run Smarter podcast, I'm educating runners constantly, I'm treating runners. Um, I do online physio now. So I treat only runners and I treat them from all over the world. And yeah, it's it's constantly just me just integrating uh, running and working with runners constantly. And so I've just got this constant like passion. And so, yeah, that's, that's sort of where it's led me to today. And it obviously has made a big difference in your life. I mean, it's, it's the way you described it. You just, you literally lit up on the screen here. Obviously, this is a audio podcast. People can't see this, but me, but it's pretty evident. And I'm sure people could tell just by the inflection in your voice, how much it means to you. How much does it mean 
to patients or prospective patients uh, when they work with a physio who is really dialed in to a specific sport or activity? Obviously, we're talking about running here, but just generally speaking, how much does it help when you talk to a physio who really is dialed in with a certain activity versus more of a general practitioner? Well, we can start with like the very other end of the spectrum when someone goes to a health professional or goes to a doctor, a GP, and they come in because they're a runner and they come in with knee pain and they say, why are you running for? Running's bad for your knees. They're obviously not a runner. They obviously have no idea what running is. They obviously think that you can drop running just at the drop of a hat and try something else. Um, that's like you walk away from that experience just being like, man, I wish I found someone else. And People do appreciate the, if someone has niche down and sort of specialized in a certain area, the the relevance and the importance of kind of finding them. And so if you, if you have high hamstring tendinopathy from running and then you go to a physio who specializes in running, that's awesome. You, you've found the right person. If you find a physio who has specialized in proximal hamstring tendinopathy, your exact condition you're going to go to them even more. Like the more dialed down, the more niche it is, the more like specific it is to your condition. Um, you just feel like they understand you more. They feel like the information that you get is a lot more evidence-based. It's just like really, um, you, you really trust a lot of what they say. And so there is the that kind of spectrum where do people fall. And you can ask like a lot of the runners myself, like I work with runners all over the world and they choose to, strictly do this online physio that I have when they have the option to go to their face-to-face physio down the road. But because they're a generic physio um, who might not necessarily cover a lot of or have that niche understanding, they haven't spent so long around runners or around this specific condition that they find the benefit in um, not choosing that that face-to-face physio and actually going with an online physio who is more niche down. And so um, the benefits just like it's obvious to outweigh like if you've spent more time around that condition, if you spend more time around this population, you really know the 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 nuts and bolts, you really know what type of like shoes you should wear, how to manipulate that, how to manipulate running technique, how to manipulate cross training. And um, it just covers a whole bunch of bases that like a generic physio might know, but you're not too sure um, until you're actually like face to face and test all these people out. But you kind of know that you found the right person if they've dedicate their whole career to this specific population. So with the vast majority of, say, the diagnoses that that you work through with, with the runners that you're seeing, are they pretty common stuff in terms of like a general physio would be able to identify it? Or, and the reason I ask is I'm trying to figure out because I've worked with people like yourself who are running based physical therapists and I have seen a huge increase in terms of like what they've been able to do for me. And I always wonder, is it that they're able to identify and diagnose at a higher level or is it more of, okay, no, it's more of like in the recovery where they can, I, you know, speak my lingo. They know what, you know, they know what a workout means for a runner, which might mean completely something completely different for someone in another sport versus like, or like you mentioned, like the running shoes and just like all the ancillary things that can build up in terms of someone's overall knowledge, especially when it comes to treating something versus say the diagnosis process? Yeah, I think uh, especially when I first started out, the vast majority of runners that were finding me, 
they had already gone down the face-to-face in-person path and it's kind of failed them. Like they've still, their injury didn't really get much better or it came back really quickly and they find themselves in a bit of a cycle with their injuries and then decide to try something new. Like they might've listened to my podcast or like read my content somewhere and decided to, to give it a go. Um, and so that's usually one part. They said, I've, I've seen two physios, I've seen one chiro, I've seen one specialist, I've got MRIs, x-rays, um, I've had this pain for 12 months, can you help me? And so that's one path. But to answer your question, like when it comes to how online really specifies, a lot of it is education. A lot of it is education about their injury, how they got injured in the first place, um, what we can actively do now to not um, flare up that injury, how active we can be, how we can work on your fitness without irritating that injury. A lot of it is really niching down into those specifics, which I I feel like the the education side of things is – really fall short when it comes to just a generic physio. I see a lot of runners that come to me and say, I, I saw this health professional. Um, they gave me these exercises, which is great. Um, but they think that I'm too stiff. They think that like my glutes aren't firing. They think that I have flat feet that's causing my injury. And it's, it's usually a lot of education around reassurance for them. It's a lot of education around what the stuff that they can do, the stuff they can't do. And then just building up this management plan, this like rehab ladder where, where they're currently at, where their capacity currently is at and the running goals that they have, how can we bridge the gap and work our way up that rehab ladder to reach them? And that's all through education, strength training, return to run programs, analyzing their running, um, advice about sh- footwear, like all those sort of nitty gritty stuff uh, to help work their way up that rehab path, which we can all do via online. So yeah, it works out well. All right, let's talk a little bit about the running process when we have injuries and the process of, you know, when rest is, is, is an acceptable part of the treatment plan and when it's not necessarily something that needs to be taken into account or something that we can just kind of move past and do things while we're running. Because I've had, you know, various injuries and I've had different ways and tactics that we've used with professional help um, to figure out the best way moving forward. And it's interesting to me, over the past 20 years, how you know, how different injuries have, have, have changed in terms of how we've worked with them. Because I have seen so often that, you know, sometimes it's like, hey, you rolled your ankle or, you know, we're going to put you on the show for four to six weeks. And other times it's like, no, you know what? If it's if you if you can put weight on it in a week, let's just run. We're going to get it. We're going to heal it as we go. This is just a, a real life example that I'm currently working through. But I think it also paints the picture of what we're talking about here. So when we start going down that that road, I guess generally speaking, how do you approach that sort of dichotomy between dichotomy between the rest as a as a as a tool versus kind of working through things while we're still training? But before I delve into that, what what's your recent injury? What what have you had recently? Oh, I rolled an ankle uh, doing some uh, trail running, which I'm trying to do more of. And then I, I've, I've historically bad ankles. People who listen to this show consistently have heard me talk about how, like, I had reconstructive ankle surgery on my right ankle when I was 20 years old. And when I went in, they were like, all right, choose an ankle. They're equally awful. <laughs> it's like, all right, <laughs> right. I, guess, I guess I'll do my right ankle. Um, I don't have a car right now. So if I, if I have a car later, I don't want to not be driving with my right foot. So... <laughs> I chose my right ankle. This was my sophomore year of college, and I had a a very long recovery process. So they basically 
you know, cut the flat, the, the outer three ligaments in the ankle, tighten them, reattach them. One of them was in pretty bad shape. So they brought tissue up uh, from my foot to kind of strengthen it. And they basically said the left ankle was equally bad. So I say this as a preamble of I, I've been turning my ankles for a very long time. And I did it again a couple, uh, 10 days ago out on the trail. And um, I'm trying to be much more proactive in my recovery, um, kind of like running through discomfort with this goal of, hey, I'm not going to go on the shelf for four to six weeks. I just don't want to. So maybe I'll give this a try kind of thing. I, I feel your pain. Like years on the basketball court, I've rolled both ankles like several times. And so, yep, definitely feel your pain with that. And the more you roll them, the easier it is to roll after that. Uh, that as was you the can thing that they kept explaining to me like, hey, you're, it, the ligaments are the, like an elastic band and yours are completely stretched out and they're not going back in. Yeah. <laughs> kind of yeah. feel. Okay, so let's dive into this injury and running while injured. Uh, Let me backtrack a little bit because I think we need to know why runners get injured before we can explain the nitty-gritty because the the other stuff will make sense if I explain this. So keep in mind that most running-related injuries, the vast majority of running-related injuries are due to overload. It's due to an overloaded structure. It's due to an abrupt spike in training. Most people are kind of familiar with like a a spike in mileage. Um, All your tendons, all your muscles, all your joints, they have a certain capacity, a certain load capacity that they can tolerate. And if you exceed that, it starts breaking down rather than building up. And we need to find out where that capacity is so that we don't exceed it And what's just below that is what we call your adaptation zone. We want to try and challenge the body. We want to try and test out the body through various like running speeds, terrains, um, mileage. Um, We want to strain. We want to cause strain because that's how we hit our adaptation zone and that's how we get stronger over over the time. So you kind of have to figure out your upper limit at some point. Like so, So going too far isn't inherently a bad thing as long as you don't continue to do it. Is that what you're kind of saying? Um, you can go too far just say in one session and get injured because of it. We want to try and find within your body, your body as a whole, where your adaptation zone is, which is a a certain amount of load. Let's say it's a 10K run um, where if you do that 10K run, your body will be like, damn, that was hard, but it was good. Let's, um, Let's adapt and let's become stronger. But if you were to do 40K and you're not prepared for it, then it will exceed your adaptation zone and the body will be like, yep, let's flare up this tendon. Let's create this joint soreness. Um, So it's a very like loose way of describing it, but you have a certain adaptation zone, any abrupt change, and that might be change in terrain, um, change in different types of footwear, um, mileage, speed, all these sort of things. If it's too abrupt, the body says, well, that was way too much. And they start breaking down uh, and start generating an injury. Um, so that's like a very key principle that we need to understand. And this is like within my podcast, the the very first 10 episodes of my podcast cover these kind of universal principles. And this is episode one, like adaptation education is what I call it. And we delve into a little bit more detail, but when we actually get injured, so going back to this question before, if you have overloaded your body, if there has been an abrupt shift in your training, um, there may get to a point where a ligament gets sore or a tendon gets sore or a joint or a muscle, but your adaptation zone in that sensitive state while it's sore, your adaptation zone doesn't stay where it is. It actually drops because it's sensitive because you can't put the same load back through it. And so when you um, try again, if someone tries another run 
and they try the, let's say they get, they got injured doing a 10 K run. Then they go back and they try an 8K run. That's still exceeding that this new adaptation zone, this sensitive adaptation zone. Then it becomes flared up again because it's you're, you're continuously exceeding that adaptation zone. And so this is where it gets really tricky with people when they are injured. They're like, well, should I run? Should I rest? What should I do? Um, but however, there is this other tricky thing where if it is sensitive and that adaptation zone itself has diminished and can no longer tolerate the current levels of running. If you combat that with complete rest, so let's say, oh, let me just spend a week off running and I'll try next week and see how it goes. You're trying to rehab this injury with rest and rest is weakness. Like it continuously will get weaker if you don't subject it to load, if you don't subject it to training. And so people might have a week off, start again, maybe try a conservative 5K and it flares up again because you've it's sensitive and weak at the start and then you've addressed it with complete rest so it's weaker again. Then you try and uh, go back to this 5K run and symptoms flare up again. And you think to yourself intuitively, you think maybe my injury hasn't healed. Maybe it needs more time to heal. And so intuitively, you'll have another week off or you might have two weeks off. And this is where, this is another concept in my um, 10 principles, this pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral, because it literally is this downward spiral where if you um, don't recognize it and you don't catch yourself out on it, you can get to the point where any amount of running can start becoming too sensitive and too um, too much, too much for this. It, it continues to surpass this adaptation zone. And so um, your next question I'm going to believe is, well, what do we do then? What's the, what's the right answer? How do we, how do we combat this? Am I right in saying that? Let it fly, Brody. Let's hear it. <laughs> the So initially, if we were, I guess, sensible enough, um, if we were wise enough, if we had the, the running IQ, um, this is why I call it the Run Smarter podcast because we do need to, to run smart. If you did that 10K initially and your knee flared up, you currently have a new adaptation zone while it's sensitive, while it's sore, um, that might be it's your job or it's the physio's job as well to find out where that new adaptation zone is because it's dropped in the short term. So we need to find where it is. And is it short amounts of running? We need to test that out. Is it um, backing off and maybe doing squats or wall sits or something to stimulate that area that doesn't flare things up? Um, It might be that, but it's all based on trial and error. I usually base it on a few things. So let's say we'll use this knee pain. We'll use this 10K example where someone's ran 10Ks and um, they've come into the clinic two days later saying, I've got a really sore knee. And we say, okay, how can you jump? Can you jump on two legs? Can you jump on the spot? And they say, yeah, that's okay. Um, we say, how's ju- hopping on one side? Um, yeah, that's okay. Maybe there's like a one out of 10 pain. Um, can we hop on one side for 60 seconds? Yeah, that, that feels okay. Um, maybe a one or a two out of 10 pain. We say, okay, maybe you're ready for some low levels of running. So let's walk for one minute, run for one minute. Let's do that 10 times and let's see how symptoms are. Let's see how symptoms are afterwards. And that's just a little test. We need to put on like our scientific cap and say, we're going to take this as a test. If symptoms increase during that period of time, then I want you to stop straight away. If symptoms just hover around this one or two out of 10 pain, um, just continue to test it out and see how it goes. Um, Once you've done that 10 rounds of running for one minute, walking for one minute, 
Let's see how it feels afterwards. Let's see how it feels later on in the day. Let's see how it feels the next morning. And if there's no increase in symptoms, you can say, you know what? I think this might be around your adaptation zone. I think this might be either we've reached it or we've fallen just short of it. So let's continue working a little bit more and see how it goes. And so we're being very proactive. We're making sure that we're not losing fitness. We're still staying active. We're still putting load through this sensitive structure, but it's not enough to flare things up, but it's not, it's still proactive enough to, um, I guess, rejuvenate and rehab this sensitive area. Yeah. And if thinking to your first example of the, the high hamstring tendinopathy or any basically any other you know common injury that maybe you see and I, I dealt with knee bursitis in the past or, or whatever I wonder if there's a point where if you're working with somebody who has a sort of injury that pops up from time to time so they all of a sudden they become certainly you're an expert but they become well versed in this issue does it get to the point where you can kind of educate them to the point of they can figure some of this out on their own with something that's kind of a reoccurring issue? 100%. And this is why I like educating runners. This is why it's my job because I want them to start making their smart decisions. And if an injury does pop up, they have this like insight of knowing what's okay, what's not okay, what they should do next. And there are sort of principles and guidelines that you can follow based on any injury, I think maybe stress fractures might be the exception to the rule. But for most injuries, um, a little bit of pain's okay. A little bit of soreness is okay. Uh, we want to make sure that, like a, in that example I used before, want to make sure that these acceptable levels of pain uh, stay acceptable during the activity. want to make sure they stay acceptable after the activities, once you've cooled down, once you've moved around for the rest of the day. And definitely, especially for, say, tendon injuries, tendinopathies, the next morning is another snapshot in time that you really need to, to assess to accurately reflect if the day before has been too much or if it's been okay. And usually it's that next morning where um, we need to assess, okay, is this morning symptom? Is this morning stiffness? Is this back to baseline? Is this my baseline kind of symptoms that um, have been the last several mornings or is it a bit worse? And if it is a bit worse, it means we've done a bit too much the day before. Yeah. So, when we're talking about these, like the, the scaling of the the threshold and the discomfort or the pain, or was a chart of one to ten or what have you, what have you seen in terms of just the subjectivity of different athletes in terms of their own tolerance for discomfort and pain? Because especially if you're doing this virtually, like you're relying on them to give you some sort of indication of what's going on as opposed to like, say, you're putting you know, your thumb in their hamstring and you can have some sort of uh, nonverbal reaction that you can can be your guide in those situations. What's it like trying to trying to figure some of this out? Because I can imagine some people being like, oh, yeah, that's a three out of 10 and someone having the exact same sensation saying it was maybe even double that. It's. A good question because it is very subjective and we do have, I guess, a, I use the scale of one to 10 and it it's extremely subjective. And people always say to me, well, I have a high pain threshold. So what does that exactly mean? And so I have to really sort of- I think of, it's kind of like 95% of people think they're an above average driver. I think it's the same sort of thing. It is. It definitely is. And I was at, <laughs> even like when I was working in clinics, I used to come home to my family and let them know how many clients- had told me that they have a high pain threshold. It, it was just great. I'd hear it every day. And so uh, the uh, we've actually got science to 
to back us up when it comes to tendon rehab to say that an acceptable pain is anywhere below a four out of 10. So if you do a, a zero, one, two, three out of 10 during your exercises, you're actually going to, your rehab is going to be quicker than if you were to avoid pain altogether. And that's not during running, it's during like your rehab exercises. So you're doing your squats, deadlifts, like the weighted kind of rehab exercises, but goes to show that you will rehab quicker if you start to poke that injury just a little bit. You, you need to poke it into a little bit of pain to stimulate it a little bit more um, in order for it to get better quicker. And that process is a lot more drawn out. A lot, um, It just is delayed a lot more if your aim is to have absolutely zero out of 10 pain. Just takes a lot longer. But if someone says, okay, well, what is two out of 10 pain? Like what is a three out of 10 pain? And I like to describe if someone's running and they notice their pain, they notice their pain and they say, yep, it's definitely there. There's definitely some soreness, but it's not enough to limp. Definitely if you're limping, the pain's too much or you're compensating way too much. If you're limping, you shouldn't be running. But if you if you can notice it there while you impact the ground or while you're trying to push off, um, ask yourself another question like, are you apprehensive to land on that foot? Are you apprehensive to kind of push off that that side? Because if you are, then there's probably you're probably not doing yourself too many favors. But I've been injured constantly. I, I have a lot of past history of injuries, and I know that I can feel some, some soreness, but I still have confidence to push off. I feel like my my injured side is working at the same rate as my other side. I feel like I can still manage that a lot. It doesn't disrupt too much of my running. It doesn't like mentally I'm feeling okay to run on that side. Uh, yeah. So there's a couple of descriptive um, internal processes that you can do to kind of assess if it's too much or if it's, um, or if it's acceptable. Yeah, that's interesting. How much do you take into account non-running type movements, all right? So a good example of this is like, all right, I'm running straight lines. I'm not a trail runner. I'm just out on the roads. I might be able to do something in that plane, but I may not be able to do things laterally, right? So maybe like I'm going around the house and like, say I'm mowing, mowing the yard, right? So I'm mowing the yard. I'm doing these turns. I'm like, oh, that's, that kind of hurts a little bit, but I'm going off my run and it doesn't really hurt. Is that some sort of indication or is that like, well, if it doesn't hurt with your activity, then you're, then you're fine. Or if it's below the, the four threshold, then you're fine. I can tell we're talking about your ankle now. Nope, I think not it's at all. Turned. No, of yeah, definitely talking about my ankle. Um, so <laughs> this is not a free session. Let me just let me just say that right from there. This is not a free session, but it did have that experience about four hours ago, so it was fresh in mind. <laughs> I have been on podcasts before where they've they've had mo- they've got multiple hosts, and one of them just asks, "So if you wake up and your hamstring's feeling like a bit twingy, but it's okay to walk on, and it's obviously just straight away an intervention." And so they're asking for injury advice, but always happens. Um, so I do have some advice around this. If your running is okay, if you're perfectly fine running in a straight line and it's okay afterwards, it's okay the next day, um, then you have my permission. You, you're okay to do that dosage. Uh, if it's sore to change direction, if all of a sudden you change from roads to trails and your injury starts becoming worse, then let's back off the trails for a bit and let's just do road. If you decide that you are, um, let's just say you do some housework and your injury, e.g. ankle, is quite sore because of that. And then you go for a run and that soreness is now like a four out of 10 rather than like a two out of 10. You shouldn't be running because it's it's irritated because of what you've done prior. And so 
there's a couple of rules to follow there, but there is another rule here which needs to be needs to be explained. One, if you have a stress fracture or suspect a stress fracture, we can't poke into pain. It needs to be zero out of 10. Um, it usually requires time off, which is stress fracture is always the exception to the rule. So there's um, time off. Then we slowly start to build you back up, start to load that bone. And we want things to be pain-free, maybe a one, may, maybe a zero to a one out of 10, but that's the exception. Um, but also this other general rule is if we're poking into this injury and we're seeing how things go and we're testing things out, we're putting on our little science cap and we're treating things as experiments, it's okay to poke into a little bit of pain, but week by week, as a snapshot week by week, you should be feeling better. You should be getting better um, over the long term, I guess you could say. Um, because if you're not getting better in the long term and all of a sudden a running was a two for two weeks, now it's a three for two weeks, now it's a four for two weeks, means what we're doing isn't really agreeing with us. And so, um, yes, in the moment, uh, pain levels below a four out of 10 is fine and acceptable for most injuries, but we need to see some progression, some slight improvement week by week by week. And when should people be using uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs? So the the aspirins, the Advils, and so on and so forth, right? So we have some of these that can be useful just from in terms of like, not only like duration and things like that, but say time of day and then the interaction between like, is it pre-run, is it post-run, is it at night? And just as how that can be incorporated into the recovery model and when is it too much or when should we really be active and saying, hey, this is part of the recovery that can help me? A few things. So one, um, we have these category of drugs, which are non-anti-inflammation medication. So um, non-steroidal, I should say, non-steroidal anti-inflammation medication. Uh, a lot of running related injuries aren't inflammatory driven. They're overload driven. They're kind of, they've just done too much. They've exceeded their adaptation zone. Usually if there is a, um, like what we call trauma. So a rolled ankle is, uh, is traumatic. If you get tackled, if you fall, there may be some inflammation as the primary driver, but we know for a lot of running injuries, it's more due to overload. So there's no, the, the primary driver isn't inflammatory based. And so you don't need anti-inflammation medication. Um, so I'm very apprehensive about that. Uh, and there's also research to show that long-term use of the, this category of drugs is actually detrimental to our, our ability to tolerate capacity. And so what that means is if you were to take non-steroidal anti-inflammation medication for more than two weeks, uh, and then you do your strength sessions, then you do your running, then you do your um, your normal weekly kind of mileage. Your tendons in your body and your muscles in your body can no longer tolerate or withstand the the loads that you previously could. And so we want to be very cautious about how we prescribe this medication um, because we know some of it has a bit of a... Um, a pain numbing effect. So you might feel better. You might feel really good, but you're putting yourself at risk of flaring up that injury or another injury. Um, so we want to be very careful. If someone has a tendinopathy um, or if someone rolls an ankle or if someone has a really irritable knee, if they've really overdone, if they've run their marathon through their injury and they've felt it the entire time and the next day they feel horrible, you're not running, you're taking your time off. You having, you can have this um, non-steroidal anti-inflammation medication, you could take it for two days, two to three days, let things settle. And then you're getting back into your gradual loading 
all the stuff I had before, those like really proactive sort of um, exercises, strength exercises, uh, return to running, all that sort of thing. But um, only take it for two days. You're only resting for two days. So you're not losing a lot of fitness. You're not becoming weaker. We're not into this pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral. Um, that's my advice. Uh, I We don't get a lot of training around uh, medication prescription. Obviously, a doctor and that sort of thing is a lot more well-versed than I am. But we do know for runners, we do know for running-related injuries, we're very apprehensive to provide this this category of drugs. All right, so let's talk about recovery. Um, Not recovery like, all right, we're going to be doing active recovery based on a certain injury and and bringing that forward. And and you mentioned a lot of – you've already mentioned a lot on that topic. Uh, Just general recovery. um, What are some things that you try to set as baselines for your clients? Uh, When they're injured? When they're – but not even when they're injured necessarily, but just like, hey, this in order for you to perform at your best, this is the kind of sleep that you should be getting from a resting heart rate perspective. Maybe someone's wearing a whoop. I got one on right now. Um, just in terms of what you th- see as best practices around recovery for somebody who is actively engaged with you know, their training cycle and they're really putting in uh, consistent mileage. Yeah. Um, actually, last Last December, I think it was, I had this theme on my podcast, which was recovery month. And so I had a whole bunch of solo episodes. I had a whole bunch of health professionals come on like recovery experts. And we talked all about these sort of strategies. And there was a few common themes that keep popping up. Um, Shona Halson's a recovery expert and she was, um, uh, I interviewed her and Usually when it comes to recovery, like say straight after a run, if it's very high intensity, if it's really put a whole bunch of strain on your body, less maybe a race or maybe if you're trying to get like a PB, um, it is best to have some sort of active recovery, some sort of cool down. Uh, and what she recommends is it needs to be very low intensity. So your heart rate needs to drop. You need to stop sweating. You really need to really pull the brakes and just do some light cardio sort of thing that might be going into the pool that might be going for a walk that might be jumping onto the bike and having a spin so you're still moving things around while everything recovers back to baseline recovers back to this homeostasis so your heart rate returns back to normal um you're replacing your fluids obviously um and you're replacing like whatever nutritional losses you've had but when it comes to actual like interventions or sort of strategies it there's no real um, massive guidelines outside of just make sure it's really low intensity, make sure it's like cardio focus, keep things moving, but make sure it's no extra strain to your body. Because I might have a cool down, but it's a jog, but you're still kind of panting, you're still kind of sweating. It's not really like a real gentle walk where you're moving things around. Um, there is a few things I could say around stretching. Um, stretching feels nice. Stretching feels good for some, and it actually is has a lot of um, mental benefits, getting you into that relaxation, um, unwinding kind of state. And so stretching can be really good for that. However, we have a ton of evidence to show that actual like stretching, static stretching doesn't really do a much, doesn't do much for recovery for the physical attributes, the physical properties. It doesn't restore like muscle length. It doesn't get rid of lactic acid. It doesn't increase blood flow. It doesn't shorten the duration of the delayed onset muscle soreness, that DOMS kind of experience. It doesn't, it doesn't shorten that recovery kind of cycle. But um, yeah, from the, from the physical properties, doesn't really hold up with the science. 
but we can't underestimate the benefits that it has with the mental component because we really need to have some sort of strategy, whatever strategy that be for any runner that helps switch them out of exercise and into this unwinding recovery state. Right. I also wonder how much like the placebo effect happens with that one, where it's like, if you believe it's helping you and it doesn't, it's not hurting you in any way. And it's not, you know, being, it's not having, having negative effect in your life. Like, oh, I was going to bring my kid to soccer, but I had to stretch. So he misses practice or something. Like if it's not hurting you actively, then, and you believe it's helping you, then it might be helping you simply just because of the positive mindset part of it. Not only the positive mindset, but actually it, it kind of feels good. Like if you stretch your quads after a run, that sensation kind of feels good. So that enhances the placebo effect as well. And like you said, stretching is not detrimental. So if you decide to do it, that's totally fine. Um, the same goes with using stretches as a warm up or like a preparing the body. Um, I have the exact same take. The science doesn't hold up, but if it feels good for you, and if you try a whole bunch of different stretch sessions, if you try a whole bunch of different regimes, find the one that's best for you, then you stick to that because that's how you feel the best. And that's uh, what's actually going to like help you mentally um, and help with that kind of placebo effect as well. So you're an expert uh, not from a uh, education perspective, but from a and from just like being a part of people's lives perspective of of dealing with and watching people deal with setbacks, right? So you're there when they are beset by setbacks, they have goals, they're they're reaching out to somebody who lives in Australia. They might not live anywhere near you because they are driven, they have goals, they want to get better, and they're probably really frustrated, right? I mean, those are probably four things that are going to be pretty common with a lot of people who are reaching out to you. So what is your take on either the the mindset, the belief, the emotional state, the things that you see as common characteristics of people who get better and get back to the spot they want to be. Or you can take this from the other perspective of like, here are some things that if people are doing, I know that this might not go the way that they want it to go. Yeah, I do kind of need to play a little bit of a, another role. I wouldn't say a psychologist, but at least like knowing their current like mental state as well, because it has a huge influence on the goals they have and how they actually um, get back to running, how they, they handle their rehab, how they handle their injury. It's all very like emotionally driven. We know that the the stress that injury plays, like the mental stress that injury plays has a significant importance on recovery itself. It's, yeah, it's, I, I can use a, a couple of examples. Um, if someone is injured and let's say someone has this knee pain after going for a 10K run and they are anxious to kind of use that knee, they, they want to make sure there's no pain. They're like really apprehensive to go upstairs, they're apprehensive to do squats because they're fearful of poking into some sort of level of pain. They've had their, their dad had the same knee pain and it's caused a lot of tension. It's like he, it, it took two years for him to overcome that knee pain. Am I going to end up like that? And they're really, really wound up you need to really settle them back down. Like a, a lot of reassurance to start with. You don't even start doing squats. You don't even start doing wall sits. You make sure that they know that it's okay to start loading it. They know exactly what causes the pain. What's at like the education side of things is probably higher on that amount. Um, but then you have these other people who are fine with, with pain. They're fine with running. And I was, um, 
dealing with a, a client a couple of months ago who I gave her a um, a running program to do. So you follow this, like today you're going to run 5Ks, tomorrow you're going to do this. And she said, okay, I'll take that on board, but then I'm going to write down what I actually do. Uh, and so below the 5K run that I told her to do, she puts 8K and puts the 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 pace that I told her to do, she puts the pace that she actually did. And then she documents how painful it was and her symptoms afterwards. And and very much a go-getter, very much like I need to constantly be moving. I really need to, can't take any time off running. I need to like continue building upon this fitness that I've worked so hard to work on. They don't want to think about that injury. And so both sides of those, those two examples, they're both very like, personality driven they're both psychologically driven and the process to treat both of them might be the same like on paper but how you actually do it based on the individual and based on how their 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 emotional state is and their past experiences and all that sort of thing what their training philosophies are you need to treat them differently and so yeah it's very much like a a psychological approach as well as the physical do you ever get in a spot where you have to kind of like lay down the law? Like you can do this. You can do more than you think you can. Like, cause I, I can see physiotherapists oftentimes, especially with type A runners, maybe, you know, being the person who's like teaching another person how to drive, right? They have the extra brake on their, on their side of the vehicle and they're like pumping the brakes and trying to get them to slow down. Do you ever find yourself doing the opposite of like, come on, you can do this. You know, you, there, there's more here and you're really trying to get them to the next level. Yeah, most of the runners that I work with, they've had this pain for more than 12 months. And so a lot of them are apprehensive to, say, return to running. They're fearful to get back to running, but they want to do it. And so a lot of times it is making sure that we address their confidence with returning as well. Um, if someone's had a tendon, a tendon pain, like high hamstring tendinopathy is what I work with mainly the most, or plantar fasciitis I work with a lot as well, they're very fearful to load up that structure but tendons, especially tendons, they love heavy, slow load. They recover a lot quicker with slow, heavy load. And even like um, higher levels of pain are okay. And so it's really, um, it takes a lot of encouragement. It takes a lot of like confidence building for someone to, for me to kind of educate them. Strength is fine. Like if you do this deadlift with, you know, 15 kilos, we know that um, if we do say one set of five, that's not a lot, but if, it'd be really, really beneficial for the the tendon to adapt, the tendon to get stronger if we do this heavy sort of stuff. And if they are very apprehensive, if they are very um, cautious or worried or fearful or anxious to, say, return to run, then we need to build up their confidences very gradually. We say, like, how's your walking? Oh, walking's okay. I can walk for 20 minutes. Okay, so next time you walk for 20 minutes, can you jog for 10 seconds? Yeah, I think I could do that. Okay, let's jog for 10 seconds. And the next time we can jog for 20 seconds if everything's okay. And then by the end of the week, they're running for a minute and their confidence builds up along the way as well as their their tissue capacity to to handle running. And so definitely um, there is the the moments where I have to kind of push them. Comes through like clinical reasoning in a way. It comes through like um, still following these like universal principles and yeah, they're, they're, there's evidence to back behind it and there's clinical reasoning to back behind it. It's not just me saying, you can do this squat, you can do this 80 kilos, do it now. It's kind of appealing to their rational sense. All right, one more question before we get going. You also have a really nice uh, ebook that just came out that you sent me. It was absolutely fantastic. I want to touch on that as well. But before we do, 
there's people in our running community who are doing amazing things from a ultra running perspective, whether it's on trails or on the roads, they're just out there, can be out there for so darn long. It really is amazing. And I know there's a lot of people and at times, even me included, who look at that and say, hey, just genetically, I can't do that. I can't do what they're doing right now. I just can't imagine that being me. So when you look at people who've done stuff like that, and then you say you hearken back to what just like the general population, what percentage of those people who are in the running community really do have the necessary equipment and physical processes to do those kinds of things if they build up in the proper way? It's, yeah, it's it's really hard to answer. The It, it also depends on the duration of the ultra itself but i do think people are very capable like a lot of people are capable of doing things that they think they can't do um but you can't look at these ultra runners and feel like because they're so far removed you can't necessarily think that oh, i just definitely can't do that it's there's it takes years and years of just slowly building up slowly building up slowly building up to to build up that foundation to build up that capacity but also it comes to the recovery component of the equation as well. Um, I know we touched on recovery a little bit more, just like the, the warm up cool down, but when it comes to recovery as an athlete, sleeping is definitely the, the number one thing that helps your recovery. Like I know you, you talked to um, Dr. Shelby Harris, like might've been a couple of months ago, but I listened to that episode. So, you know, the port- the importance of sleep, if you had, all the recovery components, if you had all the recovery strategies that be like ice baths, massage, foam rolling, like um, electrotherapy, dry needling, everything. If you were to compile all of those and stack them all up, it won't surpass the benefits of a good night's sleep. Sleep is the number one recovery strategy you have. So if you decide to try and train for an ultra, if you try and build up this mileage slowly, you continue to start, you keep breaking down and think, oh, it's just not me. Maybe the recovery strategies are what you need to tolerate these, this load. It raises your adaptation zone. It, it makes sure that you you don't diminish. It means that you are able to build up during your sleep because we don't get stronger while we run. We get stronger the moments, the 24 hours after you run because the body starts to rejuvenate. It starts to adapt to that stimulus that you just put it through. And so it does that when you optimize recovery. And so Yes, if your external forces, that being like a well, well-trained well running program, slowly build up your capacity, slowly build up that adaptation zone, um, there's that component of things. But then if you're also saying you're getting really good nutrition, really good hydration, sleeping really well, you'd find that your external loads, you can actually tolerate more without breaking down. And so there's that component of things. It takes a lot of time, takes a lot of patience, takes, like I say, running smarter and just knowing what to do, knowing what to do. If an injury does arise, it's knowing what to do in the moment over the next week so that you can overcome that injury in five days rather than just being sore for five months. And that all comes with making those smart decisions, which is what the podcast is all about. But the um, you, you, you're totally within your capabilities. I think a lot of people within their capabilities to prepare for an ultra, if that's their ambition, it just takes a lot of patience. Speaking of knowing what to do, tell us about your new your new ebook, which is absolutely fantastic. 
Yeah, so um, I've got volume two of this ebook out now. So volume one is actually following the 10 universal principles that I have in the podcast. So it kind of reflects that. But volume two is someone striving for an injury-free PB. So while the 10 principles are about injury prevention and overcoming injury, this focuses on uh, getting faster, like increasing your running speed. I use the example of um, trying to get a fast marathon time, your, your marathon PB, as safely as you can. And there's a lot of um, health like kind of principles. There's a lot of science that, that falls into that as well around running economy and strength training and all that sort of stuff, um, which is like, there's, again, 10, chap- 10 chapters, which covers 10 different topics around how you can increase your speed safely and how you can get that marathon PB or just substitute any race distance you want. And yeah, I can make it available for your listeners. If you'd like, I can create like a sign up link so they can have access to the the book for free. Um, I will put a price tag on it in the next couple of weeks. Um, but if they have that link and they go back, no matter when you're listening to this, they can click sign up and they can get it for free. Brody, you don't need to do that, but I'm sure people would appreciate it. So I'd love can, to. We can put that link into the show notes. Absolutely. Go check that out. Even if you're listening to this a year from when we put out this podcast, it's still going to be valuable information. That is for sure. And oftentimes when we pay for stuff, we value it more. So maybe you're better off paying for it, but we'll give it to you for free anyway. (laughs) Brody, thank you so much for coming on the show. People want to learn more about you. What's the best place to do it? My first call to action is always like listen to the podcast, listen to those first 10 episodes and then do whatever you want to do after that. You can scroll through the feed, find episodes that you're interested in. Um, If you're more of a reading type of person, you can follow me on social media. The podcast itself has a Facebook group, but I'm also very active on Instagram. So at Run Smarter Series is my handle and I post blogs, I post research papers, I post exercises, um, all those sort of things. And yeah, if you like the stuff, there's tons of other social media like avenues you can take um like a five-day like email challenge all that sort of stuff but they're usually the first go-tos if anyone's interested brody i appreciate this so much thank you for everything and have a great day you too mate brody my man thank you so much for coming on the show so as he just mentioned in the show notes, if you want access to his two ebooks for free for a limited time, go into our show notes and the link is in there. If you're listening to this a little later and it's no longer free, it's still going to be worth it. He put a lot of time and effort and brain power into these suckers and it's, it's the cost of a book. So uh, it'll be worth it. You've bought a lot of books in your life, I am sure. And this will definitely be one of the special ones in your library. Also, huge shout out to Brio. The little massage gun and the foot massager, these things have a special place in our home. They get used every single day. So go to us.brio, that's B-R-E-O dot com, and use code RAMBLINGRUNNER to save 17% on your order today. Thank you so much for listening, and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.